it's something that's always been there, a yearning to know God and also experiencing Him, just knowing His presence. And I really don't think of myself as a religious person. I just happen to love the Lord passionately. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Geraldine Buckley, who is known around the nation and really worldwide as an extremely talented, delightful storyteller. Geraldine, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. As I'm sitting here and you're saying that, I'm feeling my head swelling. (laughs) (laughs) What a lovely introduction. Thank you. I've just had the privilege of hearing you tell stories for just over an hour, totally delighting the audience. They had a wonderful time. These are people you've never met before. You do this all the time. You show up to tell stories. And before we dive into the faith aspect, how do you connect with people so quickly? Have you always or how did you learn that? Well, I've always loved people. But besides that, the stories themselves are so powerful. Everyone's stories are so powerful. And if you hear someone's story, you never look at them in the same way again. And so there's always a wonderful connection with stories. So you tell stories and then people come up and they tell you their stories or you're listening to other people's stories. And there is a connection with people who can deeply listen. But what's interesting is you tell stories to different people and you're used to people reacting in a certain way, maybe laughing at one point or sighing at another point, And you go to somewhere different and they don't. They don't, but they still tell you that they really enjoyed the story. So it's a real privilege being able to go around and meet people and connect through story. Well, you've just connected stories and faith there when you say you love people. I think anyone willing to listen and hear a story is showing love. I really think that's true. I mean, after all, Jesus was the great storyteller, the master storyteller. He never preached, he told stories. And he didn't explain the ending. He let people work that out for themselves. So stories have a way of getting inside you and you think about them and being there when you need them, those lessons being inside you and then coming out when you need them. And of course, the master storyteller, he he knew that. You do not shy away at all about talking about God leading your life when you're telling stories. So I want to kind of just have us pull over into the rest area for a second (laughs) and just chat about that. I'm wondering what your earliest memories are of faith or of hearing about God, anything like that. Such an interesting question. I was brought up as a a Catholic, an Irish Catholic, and there was a convent down the road from me. And we moved to this house when I was six. My parents always took us to church. But I particularly loved that convent. It had a quality of silence that flowed through their sparsely furnished rooms. And it was because they prayed in it so much. And I loved those nuns. There was something very holy about the place. They had a huge connection with God. And I learned by osmosis, I believe, through that. But I, I felt a very a call from a very early age. It was like a yearning, a leaning towards wanting to know about God. So it's always, for me, been a mixture of the Lord and creativity, those two things. I think I was born with a yearning for creativity and the Lord. So those two, they're powerhouses, both of those. And of course, Jesus is the great creator. 
and he created the world. So that's always been what I've been passionate about, those two things, creativity and the Almighty. That yearning you speak of, was that because you were hoping that God was there, believing, or did you always feel some sort of connection that I really do know this? I think I always knew that he was there. There wasn't any real doubt, even before I formally came to know him. I think you, you learn in different ways. And I, I really seriously gave my life to the Lord when I was in my early 30s, but really it had happened a long time before that. I mean, there was one time when I was in, I went to a convent boarding school and I, I went to mass every day and had a yearning to know the Lord then when I was 16. But, but even before that, I remember that I did. And so it's something that's always been there, that there has been a yearning to know God and also experiencing him just knowing his presence. But then I think you know his presence often through creativity. And people who don't even know they know the Lord will have encountered him in movies and songs when they get terribly moved. Mm. I believe that is the Lord drawing people, maybe people who would never go to church, or he wants them to know him in a a non-religious way. And I really don't think of myself as a religious person. I just happen to love the Lord passionately. (laughs) You can define that however you want, but uh, I really love that you freely connect that and that you talk about being led. In fact, you've talked about a few moments that you said, well, this was a God thing. Yes. Usually talking about a moment when plans were being changed that you had to something that you feel like the Lord was calling you to. Yes, Yes, um, because I, I think the Lord does. He leads you. Of course he leads you. I mean, we, we know that he leads you. And he knows the big picture. He knows and he created us. So he knows what we were made for. And he wants us to be fully alive and fully human. But often we have different plans. I was a chaplain in the largest men's prison in Maryland. Well, when someone suggested I became the chaplain, I was just brushed it off immediately. I mean, I thought, how stupid. I mean, there's no way. I mean, I'm, I, I'm a free spirit. I'm creative. I can't be bound by bars. And, and anyway, I'm going to be traveling. I'll be all over the place. And, and in fact, I was going to do that in the future. It just wasn't then. Mm. And then what happens with the Lord, I think, is you might reject his plan, But then somehow by divine alchemy, you turn and then it becomes your desire. It is very strange how the Lord does that. But it does say that he he will move the, the heart of the king like the watercourse. He changes us. I mean, if we want to be in his will, he will change us so that our desires become his desires. I love thinking of the moment of you entering the prison for the first time and surely thinking, I'm really doing this. No, I was absolutely terrified. I have a whole story about it. I was terrified. So somebody asked me if I would go in and do a creative workshop. And I said yes, because I did them all over the place. I said the story that was the first time I'd ever been in. I had, I'd actually been in a prison before. I did many, many years ago, Leighton Ford, I don't know if he still does, Young Evangelist course. It was a big deal. You had to be invited to join. And I think the cutoff was 35. And I think I was 36 at the time. I was the oldest young evangelist. <laughs> and, um, and so it It was the most incredible teaching. It was a powerful week. But they were wise enough to know that if you're going to absorb, you also have to let out what you're learning. And so they arranged for all of these young ministers 
two have two evangelistic experiences. One was in an area they knew and one was in an area they didn't. And the area I didn't know was prison. Looking back at it, it was a women's prison and it must have been a release centre. It was very mild. But there was something that hooked me. So 10 years later, when I was asked if I would do a creative workshop, I said yes. I was a bit distracted. I was thinking about other things. So when I got in this woman's car and she started driving me towards the prison, I saw the razor wire. This panic rose up in me. And I thought, Geraldine, what are you doing? This is a prison you're going into. But I thought, don't panic. Don't panic. You need to appear to be cool. And then we drew up to the gate and I was still really panicking. And I said, what kind of prison is this? She said, oh, she said, it's maximum security. I said, you mean murders and rapists? She said, yes, there'll be 200 in the room. And I started to hyperventilate. (laughs) And then when those doors closed behind me, I had to get into the nearest restroom and, and pray. I mean, just pray. I said, Lord, this was your idea. These are big bad boys and I'm about to teach them poetry. If you don't come through, I'm going to be toast. Anyway, that was the start. I really was panicking. But then something happened during that session and I just connected with the men and it was through creativity. I did some of my poems. They laughed. Then they did their poems, which came from their gut, from their inmost being. And it was like the Lord showed off in that room. And I was hooked. I knew I had to do prison work. And I learned as much as I could about prisons. But I didn't think I was going to be the chaplain. Then, as I said, I applied because people said that I should And then something changed and I wanted to do it and I knew it was absolutely God. And I knew I'd only be there for a short time, but that a lot was going to be accomplished. So that's what he, he does. But all the time I was the chaplain, I still did a weekly creative workshop. I did a writing workshop because it's my passion and that was going to keep me sane, really. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about a poem that you wrote that you shared with the prisoners when you went. Had you written that before you'd met any of them or after? It was after the first time I went into the prison. Would you share that? Uh, Yes, I would love to. It's called Do Not Think. Do not think I have forgotten you, though you dwell in this desolate place, though cold and gloom encircle you and despair has pushed out grace. The plans I have for you hold true, though all around has changed. Though your hopes and dreams are smashed, destroyed, your future rearranged. For there is destiny upon your life. I have not changed my mind. Your name is scribed upon my palm. You will not be left behind. My training grounds are mine to choose. This one's austere, no light. But from this stark, dank valley, you'll arise to fight my fight. I have called you to the nations. My plans are still in place. This darkness will turn into dawn. Let me hold you. Seek my face. And they believed that. They accepted that from you. They did. They loved it when I read it to them, and they wanted to read it to them often and read it over them as a blessing. And then I've done that for other people. It's every time people will come up and say how very moved they are, that they're going through a dark time. But of course, all of that is scriptural and the Lord's training grounds are his to choose. One of my training grounds that I didn't realize at the time was going to be the prison. Mm. You know, we talk about the Lord will lead me, yea, though I travel through the valley of the shadow of death. Yes. 
We talk about that, but we have hope towards the end of that. In a case where you're speaking to someone who, at least physically, is never going to be free, what do you see happen to their soul when they take God in, when they start reaching with faith and find a freedom that's separate from physical freedom? It's extraordinary what happens in prisons because prisons are very dark, dark places. But where there is great dark, there is also great light. Mm. And you see all through the scriptures, the Lord loves the prisoners. After all, he was a condemned man. He spent a night in a condemned cell. He understands. And so when the men turn towards the Lord, they see miracles happening because he is all they have. And they lean upon him in the most extraordinary way, and he comes through for them. And so they fall in love with him, and you see an absolute change. Now, it must be said, there are some men who just, they take this on almost like a gang. It's just, and then they study the Bible, and then they'll leave it behind when they leave. But some genuinely, genuinely convert, genuinely learn to love the Lord. And you see the most extraordinary transformation in their lives. And they have time to really study the Bible. And then they're surrounded by people who are also studying the Bible. So the prison I worked in, it had a seminary all paid for by outside funds. So many of those men had their master's degrees in Bible. So sometimes you'll be in that little chapel And it would be the holiest place on earth. You wouldn't want to be anywhere else. The anointing was so heavy. It was extraordinary. And sometimes it was so powerful that you honestly thought that the whole ceiling was going to blow off the chapel. It was God meeting with his people. It was extraordinary. And the men knew that and they craved that and they loved that. It's often then hard for them the ones who genuinely had fallen in love with the Lord and followed him when they did get out because outside churches aren't in love with the Lord often as much as Grace Church was. That's desperately in love. That's right, because that's all there was. So you see incredible transformation in those men who really give their life to the Lord, as you see in anyone who does. But they become giants very quickly because there's so much to overcome in a prison. It's a hard place. It is a horrid place. The officers often, there are some wonderful officers. There are some who perhaps are not so. And you have to overcome challenges that you wouldn't have to otherwise. And so men grow very quickly and they can easily become spiritual giants, which is completely a part from the life they had. And some men, I know it sounds odd, they do better in prison. They fulfill a call on their life better in prison than on the outside. They are going to do more in the great scheme of things and pass on their wisdom to other men who will get out. And they actually need that structure. How do you prepare yourself as a chaplain to be kind of a fountain, really? How do you fill yourself beforehand? Or what do you have to do to know you're in the right place spiritually to interact and be able to do what a chaplain does? Now, you have to remember, I left nine years ago Ah. as a prison chaplain, but I know that we're going to be talking about the fact that I'm going to be a hospital chaplain. but, But how do you prepare? Well, you have to love the Lord and to read his word and then to try really hard not to be a hypocrite, <laughs> so, which I think we all have to take that on board, that you believe what you're saying and 
It's always keeping short accounts with God. I mean, we're all going to mess up. I'm certainly going to mess up all the time. But then to just go before the Lord and say, I've messed up. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And to keep short accounts with him. You can tell me if you're comfortable with this or not. A personal question would be what you talked about, the people turning to God because he's all they have. Have you had moments like that? Yes. Yes, I have. And I remember somebody years ago praying over me and a friend. And I knew that she was really in touch with the Lord and very prophetic. I knew that very much. And, and she prayed a wonderful blessing over this friend that she was going to be a person that people would bring things to because she would distribute them. And it was wonderful. And I thought, I would like that. That would be rather marvelous. I didn't get that at all. Now, they prayed over me that this was long before I went into the prison, that I would pray for people and call forth a way where there was no way. And I was really despondent. I mean, on the surface, it sounds absolutely marvellous. But I knew enough about the Lord to know that he would work that in me. So I would have to be in a place where there was no way (laughs) Mm -hmm. to be able to know that God does come through in those times. And so I would surprise the men by telling them some of the things. Like there was one time I honestly thought I was going to be homeless. And I went with a friend of mine. We knew that the homeless lived under a bridge and we actually checked out our places there. I mean, you would not think... (laughs) looking at me or talking to me, and the men certainly wouldn't, that I ever got in that position. I didn't actually have to do that, but I was really close to it. So, if And you were willing to share that with them? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. My family doesn't actually quite know that, so it'll be interesting if they listen to this. But (laughs) but yes, and I live by faith for a long time. And I sometimes think clearly I didn't have enough faith when I look at the state of my finances in some of those days. But, but yes, he, he works things in you so that you can pass that knowledge on to other people. I think there's two different kinds of anointing. There's one that comes on you and you can move in power because of that. And there's the other that you know it's true because it's already been worked in you. You have experienced it and seen God come through for you. Therefore, you have faith for other people. Because faith is a journey, and you learn, and you're taken on unexpected turns sometimes, and a way is made where there was no way. That's right. What do you understand differently now than you did 30 years ago, 20 years ago, about God? Well, it reminds me of a question that I asked. This was when I was in Bible school a long, long time ago. I was in England, and I was soaking up all this stuff that I was learning about the Lord and his ways. And the senior pastor was a wonderfully dramatic man. In fact, he'd been a professional ballet dancer. And with many men, this sounds, I'm sorry, I'm being terribly generalizing here, but I think it maybe happens a little more with men than with women, is that you have to really know you've got their full attention when you ask a question because they can answer off the top of their head. I mean, I suppose we all can, but I've just noticed it with men. So I asked him a question And I knew I had his full attention when I asked him. It wasn't just off the top of his head. And after all, he'd been teaching all morning and I just came to him. It could have easily. I mean, he would have been well-deserved to just give me a flip answer. But my question was, tell me, tell me, does the walk of faith get any easier? And he really thought about it. And really, I would say that now after all these years, it would be my answer too. And he said, no, he said, no, it doesn't get any easier but it does get more familiar. Mm. I've always thought that was very profound. Very memorable. 
Yes, it doesn't get easier, but it's like, oh, here we go again. I mean, the Lord has come through for me in the past. He will again. I prefer not to be here, but oh, Lord, come through, come through (laughs) as you have in the past. Yes. So are there things that you have sought answers for or hoped for understanding that you're still waiting on, that you just say, this part I take on faith? Yes. Yes. I don't know if I'm going to tell you about them, though. Oh. <laughs> have to keep some mysteries. Yes. yes, yes. In fact, somebody taught me to do this one time, and I found it very helpful, and maybe anyone who's listening might find it helpful. It was to get an index card, and on one side you put Ebenezer, which means up till this point the Lord has helped me. Mm-hmm. And you list there the things that if God had not come through for you, it would not have happened. And it might have been paying your mortgage when you had no money or, or desperately needing a job and it came through or not having food and someone gave it to you. I mean, whatever. Just things that you know God worked in your life. And, and it's really like a memorial stone. And, of course, Ebenezer comes from when the, when the Israelites were crossing into the promised land. And, with Joshua. And they, with Joshua, yes. And then on the other side, you put Jehovah Jireh which is the Lord provides, and you list the things that you really need, not the things you want, but the things you need. And you list them. And on, so the one side you've got where God came through, and on the other side, it's, it's what you need. And then I always think about Hezekiah in the temple. I hold it up before the Lord as Hezekiah did in the temple. And I said, Lord, this is what I need. You came through for me in the past. Oh, God, come through for me now. And then I often feel, because I am a passionate person, I often feel like like Ruth, you know, in the, in the temple when she's crying out to the Lord and, and, um, and is it Samuel thinks she's drunk? <laughs> but I often feel like that because she's putting so much passion into it. And the Lord always comes through. And then, and then I, I keep it on one side. And then I initial and I put the date of when he comes through. And it's extraordinary to go back over the years to see where the Lord has come through. That's a remarkable record. Yes. Yes, it is. To see what you passionately need and then to see how the Lord has blessed you and how he has done things for you and how he does care. And then you know that when he's come through for little things, that the big things, you have to know that he has promised those. But then the Lord keeps his promises. And there is something I've been praying about for years, and it looks as though it might just be on the verge of happening. And so the Lord keeps his promises. He keeps his promises, even when you go through dark nights of the soul. And we all have those, Mm -hmm. those dark nights when you wonder, will you come through for everyone else and not me? And in your mind, you really know that you're moaning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that you're whining. But I don't think the Lord minds us moaning and whining. I think he wants us to be real and he wants our faith to be real. And as I said to the men in the prison, unless it's real, unless you know God is real, don't bother doing it. Hmm. This is has to be real because the times are going to be really hard. It is hard when you're a Christian. It is hard. But it's the most real, most powerful, most soul-stirring thing you can do, but it has to be real. Basing that on your past experience and yet being in a difficult place and still hoping, that reminds me of of the man bringing his son to Jesus in Mark. He says, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe. 
Help Thou Mine Unbelief, where we find ourselves on both sides of the fence. You have no idea how many times I've prayed that prayer. Mm, mm, yes. <laughs> the other one, of course, is um, often before I go onto a stage, and I think perhaps I haven't rehearsed as much as I should, I say, Lord, it says in your word that I will not be put to shame. I'm counting on it, Lord. I'm counting on it, Lord. <laughs> Well, he could hardly (laughs) fail to come through when it's put that way. (laughs) I serve a God with a sense of humor. He has an absolute sense of humor. I know he does. Yes. How do you perceive answers to prayers? Is it something that comes in your mind and your heart? Or do you wait and watch how things work out? Or is it some combination? I suppose it depends. With your list where you say, this is the date the Lord came through, that would be one way. Well, sometimes it's actually physical. I mean, it's, and I've had miraculous things happen to me where someone has come up in a parking lot when I had just given my last $5 and they handed me $40. Extraordinary things. When I heard you storytelling earlier, you mentioned that you'd had this Damascus Road experience, something that really changed the course of your life. And I wonder if you're comfortable sharing that. Yes, yes, I am. And it was extraordinary. I was in my early 30s. I was living in London when I did have a Damascus Road experience. And basically, this is what had happened. I'd been living out of the country, out of England for a long time. I'd been in America and I'd been living in Texas where there really are no seasons. And I came back to England and England is just, it's got the most wonderful seasons and it's got horse chestnut trees, which we don't really have over here in America because they were all wiped out by disease. And they're very dramatic. And I had got myself into the new age. So I felt very dead inside. And I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, if you're bringing those trees back to life, if you can bring me back to life. Now, all the Lord needs is a little crack to work through. Mm-hmm. And so um, he did. And I was trying to get myself work as a, as a freelance journalist. And I got commissioned to write an article about a church called Kensington Temple. And so I trotted off to write this article And the Holy Spirit clearly was moving. And it was the perfect place for me to go to because it's a hundred different nationalities. And it was was the most extraordinary. It was alive with God. I mean, it was just alive with God. But I didn't know what a temple was. I know here that you know, but in the Catholic Church, we don't really think about temples except in the Bible. But so I didn't know what kind of church it was I was going to when I first went. I mean, I thought it was either a New Age church or... It was a nightclub or it was, I wasn't quite sure what it was. I say a nightclub because, in fact, I had met someone who said they sang there and I knew she sang in nightclubs. So when she first mentioned it, I thought, is it a nightclub? And then, no, I realized it was a church. And I went in there and I just, I just knew I had to find out more. So I kept on going. And in fact, I got myself commissioned to write an article so that I could go and ask questions and not get sucked in because I thought they're all going to pounce on me. They're all going to want to get me saved. And I don't know. I mean, these are clearly born again Christians. They're obviously nuts. I mean, clearly they are. So I would always get out of there as quickly as I could, but the Lord had other ideas. And then one day I had this Damascus Road experience. So what it was, it was a group that had come. Now I had heard an awful lot of preaching and this group came from South Africa and there was something about them that was terrible real. And they seemed like ordinary people, and yet they loved the Lord. And it was something about them. And the Lord often qualifies people to us when he wants to draw us. And 
I had this absolute knowing when they were singing that the Lord saw me and that he was love and that all the love I had ever craved was him. I just knew it. And he was who he said he was. It was this pouring out of love. I felt it with everything in me and I fell in love. I absolutely fell in love. I just wanted to find out more. I just got it so badly. I mean, just this revelation. And then I like to tell people that, I mean, I was, a, I was 31, I was a career woman. And I like to tell people that it's the difference between if somebody, say, wants you to, say, dating someone, they want you to iron a shirt. Now, I'm a terrible ironer. I was, it's a silly example. But, and you felt that you had to. But then you fall in love with someone and you want to do everything you can. Are there any shirts I can iron? Can I cook for you? And it's the same with the Lord. I mean, there are all these these rules that are rules. But when we fall in love with the Lord, they're not rules anymore. They're things we want to do. And it's so important finding out who the Lord is and falling in love with him and doing things from the inside out rather than having a bunch of rules and wanting to find God through the rules. There is something that's so completely different. And the thing is, life is so difficult and we never know what is going to come that we have to have a real faith, which is what I told the men in the prison. You have to know with everything in you that he is who he said he is. And that's what happened to me. I just knew he was. So what I would say to the men in the prison, I would never try and convince anybody to love the Lord. I I don't do that. What I say, and what I would often say to the the men is, you look like a man who's honourable. And there's many honourable men behind the bars. I said, so would you do me a favour? Would you, I mean, tell me if you'll do this or not. I want you to get with God. Now, I know you don't know if he exists or not, but would you say, God, if you do exist, Jesus, if you exist, the same Jesus that obviously crazy Chaplin knows, if you are real, would you show me in a way that I understand who you are? I said, will you do that? Because I, I believe that he will. And the thing is that it says in the word that he died and rose again, which means he's alive. So he will let you know. Now, the thing is, if he's not real, then nothing's going to happen. But if with all your heart you want to know, he will break in and show you. And I said, will you shake on it? Will you shake my hand that you'll do it? And they'll say, yes. And so they leave the room and I'm, then I'm praying, Lord, please come through. <laughs> oh, Lord, come through. Because when we really want to know him, that's what he wants. He will reveal himself to us because that's the passionate heart of God. That's what he wants. He wants to be in relationship with us. As it says in the word, we love him because he first loved us. That's the perfect ending. Thank you for sharing that. Thank I appreciate you so much. that so much. You've been a PR person, a yes. business person. You've been a storyteller. You've been a chaplain in a prison, and you're looking forward to work in a hospital as well. But your storytelling will continue. Oh, yes, it will. Yes, absolutely. One of the things in the hospital as a hospital chaplain, so as I told you before, I'm doing it for a year to get CPE, clinical pastoral education, which are, there are qualifications that you need to work in, a, in hospitals and anywhere but a prison, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so you're hearing people's stories. But yes, I'm believing that the Lord is going to combine the different parts of my life as I go forward. And so I will have incredible experience in the hospital as a hospital chaplain. I've got the prison 
chaplaincy and I've got the storytelling and somehow I really feel the Lord is asking me to do this, to do the, the chaplaincy in the hospital and that he will put all the different parts of my life together and I will walk forward in a new path that has storytelling and I have no idea how. So please have me back in the future and I'll be able to tell you how it all worked out. Say, what is it like a mile or two further on the path of your faith journey? I will let you know when I'm there. Geraldine Buckley, thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. That's our time for today. Thank you to our guest, Geraldine Buckley, for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.